You're listening to Creators in Saigon, a podcast based in the rapidly modernizing city of Saigon, Vietnam. I'm Dana, and together with my co-hosts, Tuesi and Nico, we interview the most inspiring creative entrepreneurs Saigon has to offer on topics about life, relationships, creativity, business, health, and more. We are all coaches specializing in different areas, but our common goal is to inspire you to reach your full potential in these areas and improve the quality of your life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to uh, another episode of Creators in Saigon. This is your host, Tuesi, today, again, alone because of the COVID lockdown here in Vietnam. We're not allowed to see people uh, physically, but that's just the way it's going to be for hopefully another month. <laughs> but we're still dedicated to, you know, give you guys some quality interviews, at least online with the creators here in Saigon. And today we're joined with our guest named Ai Toro Hens, or Toro for his friends, I guess. And Toro is a Bermudian global citizen, originally from Jamaican and Barbados descent. Toro has set his heart and passion on helping others, and his extensive travels and experience has finally led him to Vietnam. It is here in the hustle and bustle of Saigon that he decided to start his own charity named Up with Two P, so UPP Up Global, where him and his team provide sporting and educational opportunities for disadvantaged young people. So before COVID locked us all down, he was running four free English classes and one football session every week for kids the age of six to 14. And he's now patiently waiting for Vietnam to get better to continue his passionate work. So welcome, Toro. How are you? Thank you, Tuesday. Thank you. Well, I'm trying to stay positive at the moment that we're not able to do our projects, but I'm still staying positive and, and happy for the time. So let's get into the first questions, which is more about your upbringing. And actually, when I was preparing the interview, I felt quite a shame of myself because I didn't know anything about Bermuda. So I had to Google it a little bit. <laughs> so maybe it's better if you explain it uh, with your own words. But how was it to grow up in Bermuda? Yeah, man. So first of all, don't feel ashamed. It's most people when I tell them that I'm from Bermuda, they either have never heard of the country or they've heard about all the mysteries that surround the country. But a growing up Bermuda was a, was a very lucky experience because it is an incredibly small island. There's only around 65,000 people in the whole country. So it's very different, to, well, very different to Saigon, but very different to other countries around the world. It is a small community but it is very modernized in the sense that it's similar to the UK and the US, but is a Caribbean island. So it's, it's a different place in comparison to other places. All right. And did you consider your childhood to be like a very typical Bermudian childhood? Mm -hmm. I would say my childhood was very different due to my parents. So like you said in my introduction, my mom is from Jamaica and my dad is from Barbados. And my dad is very strict, very, very, very strict. So I had a strict upbringing. But part of the reason why my upbringing was very different to other people is because I lived in a dual religion, dual religious household. So my dad is a Baha'i and my mom was a Christian. So Whoa. growing up, I was taught two different faiths, which was, I guess, the beginning of me really accepting uh, other people's beliefs, but also getting a wide range of understanding of different beliefs. I see. So did you, did you consider those two religions as more having a cultural influence to you or it was just purely religious influence? 
Mm. I would say it had a massive cultural influence on me, mostly because it affected my moral principles. My biggest values, I'd say, would be empathy, positivity, and integrity. And I feel that those three values have come out of what I was taught growing up from the religious principles. And the main thing I learned from my parents was that I believe that humans are here on this earth. I'm here on this earth to make the world a better place. And it is my duty to do what I can to ensure that everything I do improves the lives of other people. And that really started from my upbringing because I saw my parents do a lot of charity work themselves back home in, in Jamaica, sorry, my mom's country. Uh, she's always helping out other people. And me seeing that growing up really influenced my personal beliefs. I see. That's quite powerful already. Wow, that's very nice. And so going back to your father, in, in which way was he strict? Yes, no problem. So a lot of people describe my father as a, maybe of an old school Caribbean man, mostly because, you know, his word is, is like the law. So I see. I see yeah. You know, whatever, whatever he says kind of goes in the household. So at times it was very difficult as a teenager. You know, I wanted to party a lot. Uh, and he, he made that quite difficult for me. But I'm, I'm very grateful for it because it, it taught me discipline. And that was one of the biggest lessons I've learned from my, my father was discipline. Discipline from a religious perspective, but also discipline just from in my everyday life. And I, I've, as, as of now older, at 25, I believe that those teachings have really allowed me to focus on what is most important for me. Very good. And so you said you grew up in Bermuda up until you were 16, and then you decided to move to the UK. Why the move? Yeah, so in Bermuda, because Bermuda is very small, it is quite common for high school students. When you get to around the age of 16, a lot of students end up leaving the country to experience the last two years of high school. Uh, but mostly people leave around the age of 18 to go to university. But I personally was very lucky that I was able to go to a sports school in England where I had the opportunity to train in football and in athletics. So when I was 16, I actually represented my country in the under 17 World Cup qualifiers for football. Oh, wow. Nice. That kind of <laughs> Thank you. That kind of led to me wanting to play football in other countries as well. At the same time, I was very lucky that that same year, I actually represented my country in the Caribbean Games in the 400 meters, which also then led to me going on to school in the UK. So at 16, I was really into my sports. So the, re the main reason why I left uh, Bermuda at that time was I wanted to uh, play sport in other countries. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's really nice. So you're pretty, pretty athletic. Uh, you played for the under 17 uh, Bermudian team or UK team. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Bermudian, Bermudian, Bermudian team. team. That, that must have been yeah. so intense. Was it cool? Oh. <laughs> uh, so nice. It was an amazing opportunity for me that I learned a lot from. It was, uh, we ended up to going to Jamaica for the World Cup qualifiers. And uh, we played against Jamaica in Jamaica. And wow. for me, it was, the, it was the first time and, and only time I've ever played a sport at that level, but in the home country, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah, yeah. being your way team, I, you know, going on that pitch and having people shout at me, curse words at me, tell me I was, you know, terrible at football, all, all sorts of things, <laughs> um, all sorts of horrible things. It was a yeah. very scary experience, but uh, an experience I'm very grateful for. 
I have a lot of respect okay. for that because it right. is not easy. That's mm-hmm. so that's so cool. So that's that's a pretty unusual, I guess, a very unusual childhood. So like you grew up in Bermuda, very athletic up until you're 16. You joined a lot of like athletic activities, a lot of sports. You decided to move to the UK because you had a, I guess, we can call it a scholarship to go to you to to finish high school. I'm mean, two years of high school. Then you went to university. What was the major that you decided at that point? When I went to university, I decided to study international relations and politics. Mm-hmm. And although I, one of the main reasons I did go to England was to um, further my, my ability in sport, but the other thing was that I was very interested in working for the United Nations. And I have been since I was very young. But I'll get more into that later. But because of that, that kind of led to me wanting to study international relations and politics because I saw that that course would teach me about other countries, but also about uh, the political systems within different countries. Mm-hmm. Very good. Actually, let's talk about this uh, right now, because you said in your interest form that your long-term goal was to work for the United Nation. So how did that come to be and how did that influence your choice? Yeah, sure. So when I was 10 years old, I actually, 10 or 11, around that age, I actually went to a United Nations, they're called Model UN Conferences. I don't know if you've heard of them before. No, sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. It's yeah. basically where you represent your school at a conference, but you are the, your school will be a particular country. And we were Egypt. And you do a simulation where you pretend to be in the United Nations and you get to talk about real world topics and discuss them and come up with solutions to issues that are happening in the world. And I first went to a conference like this when I was around 10 or 11. And it was wow. the most amazing experience for me. And uh, one of the people that I looked up to at the time was Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations. And uh, this experience, I actually went to New York to the real United Nations for this conference. And that I fell in love with the idea of being able to work there. And from that age, everything I did as I got older, every course, every job that I've done has been with the intention of eventually working for the UN. Wow. Okay, that's really cool. You already had your thoughts together at that point. <laughs> did you did you feel like, you know, with your entourage, your group of friends, were you the only one that was so driven or you were part of like, you know, a group that that wanted as much as you? I would say I was definitely part of a group that were very career driven from a young age, but career driven in different ways. We were very competitive with each other at school. You know, I didn't get the best grades and that made me work harder, I would say. And the peers around me were, in, in my eyes, very intelligent. And that influenced me to work and work harder and uh, want to achieve something greater from a very young age. So I'd say the group of friends I had really impacted me positively, which is probably why we are all still very close to this day. That's and um, nice. something about... Uh, you know, going to school in Bermuda, which in my eyes is quite different from uh, other countries, is you your group of friends you most likely know since the age of four or five years old. You might have gone to the same school because there's only so many schools. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So yeah. the, the group of friends from Bermuda are, were very, very close to each other. Mm-hmm. I see. So you didn't feel like, you know, growing up in Bermuda didn't allow to dream big. It actually gave you actually a lot of opportunities and it, it opened up a lot of horizons for you in a sense 
Yes, for me personally, it definitely did. Um, and I think that was a lot impacted by the teachings from my parents. Very good. All right. So since the age of 11, did you ever falter from that vision that you wanted to work for the UN? Did you ever have any doubts about it? I would say my only falter would be when I, I wanted to become a professional football player. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, when I was 16 years old, in terms of athletics, I was doing very well for myself. Um, I had the opportunity to play in the US or in England, and I chose England. And it wasn't until I arrived in England that I realized how hard that dream would be. <laughs> yeah. So if we segue now into your charity uh, life, your charity work life, so when did you fall in love with helping others? Yes. So I'd say that it was during university, actually, that I, I started tutoring during my master's. So after my undergraduate, I started <laughs> tutoring young children and, for free. And that was the first time that I really started loving the experience of teaching. And it was on my university course that I learned a lot about inequality and how inequality was rising in different ways uh, for people in the world. And I got a strong sense of, I'd say, emotional empathy towards uh, others that were experiencing conflict in the world. And that kind of drove me to wanting to do something about it. And after, after university, I worked for a charity called 1625 Independent People. And they focus on providing housing to homeless young people from the ages of 16 to 25. And that was my first real experience of doing charity work as a full-time job. And I absolutely loved it. I loved it because every day I felt like I was impacting someone else's life. And through that impact, it made me fall in love with this type of work. I see. Did you have any stories that really touched you throughout this whole period of you helping this homeless youth? Yes, absolutely. And one of the stories that have kind of stuck to me to this day, I actually worked with a young boy who was a refugee in the UK, and he had escaped the Syrian war. And he came to the UK because of the war in Syria. And as part of my job, I was the allocations officer. So what that entailed was I would get somebody's um, case, I would read it. And from that case, I would make a decision of what house would be suitable for them to move into, uh, which was quite a uh, intense, intense job, to be honest. Uh, at times, it really broke me down. But um, the reason why this case really stuck with me was because this young boy had experienced incredible trauma from a young age. You know, he talked about how um, people came to his house and gave him a machine gun and told him, you have to protect your family. And uh, he actually, when, when crossing the border into Europe, he lost his family. To this day, he didn't know uh, whether they were alive or not, what country they had entered, because they had to get smuggled across into Europe. And just seeing the resilience of this young man, he was my age as well. I would have been around 22 at the time. To see the resilience of this young man really showed me that I'm very lucky, that no matter you know, what bad experience I'm experiencing in my life, that it could always be worse. And it made me really grateful for the opportunities I've had up to that point. And that experience has really stayed with me and also made me want to help others like him. That's very nice. Do you still have any contact with this young man? Um, no, no, unfortunately, I do not. As part okay. of the job, we're actually not allowed to um, keep contact with our... Oh, I see. Our, yes. I see. Is that, is, is that a way for, for everybody to 
try in a way to be emotionally disconnected from all of this because it's too intense or why? Partly, but also for the protection of the young people that we work with I because see. we work with a lot of vulnerable young, uh, we worked with a lot of vulnerable young people. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the young boys and girls that I worked with were sexually or labor exploited from a young age. And because they're vulnerable youth, we had to protect them. So, you know, we couldn't exchange phone numbers or anything like that uh, for, for good reasons, for very good of reasons. Course. Of course, I, I can understand that. And so like, you must have like hundreds of stories and like, you know. Oh, yes. Was, <laughs> was there, um, you know, because were you, when you started doing this, uh, this volunteer job and helping this, this homeless youth, was it the first time that you had contact with such uh, traumatic events or is, was it like kind of like a, a shock for you to see that reality of the world? Yes, it was. So first of all, it was actually, it wasn't even volunteer work. This was my full-time job at the time. Oh, sorry, <laughs> your full-time job. Yes. But so why it was so interesting for me is throughout university, I wrote a lot about ethnic conflict. I wrote a lot about global conflicts as well. And the main thing I was missing during university is that I'd never actually spoken to someone who'd experienced things like extra exploitation or severe trauma from a young age. And I remember writing my dissertation. I wrote my dissertation about sexual and labor exploitation in the UK. And, you know, at times I would cry reading the case stories. And I, you mentioned it before, I, I do categorize myself as extreme empath. And um, one thing about compassion and empathy is that it kind of drives you to want to do something when you hear about something that is bad um, or something that has affected someone negatively. So yes, this experience working for this charity was the first time that I actually got to meet people who had experienced the things that I was writing about. You know, before I'd only read about people who had experienced war mm -hmm. or, or conflict of some kind. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. There is always a difference between knowing something and actually experiencing it emotionally and connecting with it emotionally. So it must have been like a huge leap in, in terms of experience for you and in terms of understanding this whole thing. So it's quite interesting. Absolutely. And so how long did you work um, for in that job? So I did that job for a year and a half. And by the end of that job, I, I was very tired. Um, I used to come home. I used to come home almost every day, you know, crying because of stories that I've heard that have happened to some of the young people that I worked with. But also there were, you know, some not so nice experiences within the line of work because we're, we're dealing with very vulnerable young people. Mm -hmm. And Although we, we could protect them by putting them in new houses, that didn't necessarily mean that uh, their past caught up to them, if that makes sense. I, so I because they're vulnerable young people, they were still experiencing exploitation of some kind. And because of that, I, I really did need to get out after a year and a half of that line of work, and which, which led to me wanting to do something completely different. Very good. And so what was that uh, completely different thing? Yes, that was moving to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, so you moved to Vietnam. So tell me a little bit about that adventure. How did it come about? Uh, how did you make that decision? Absolutely. So after that job, you know, so I went, uh, I went straight from my undergraduate degree to my master's degree, straight from my master's degree into this really high intense job. And after that, I just, I just wanted to travel. So me and my best friend, we ended up traveling from Thailand to Bali and then Bali to Vietnam. And the intention was always to stay in Vietnam. I didn't know I'd be here for this long. I ended up falling in love with the country. 
but um, I did want to teach in Vietnam. Like I said before, at, at university, I tutored on the side at times. And that experience led to me um, wanting to use my skills of teaching uh, to better young people here in Vietnam. Very good. And so, so you've been in Vietnam for how long now? So now it would be a year and seven months. It's been a year, a year and seven and months now. So you came like at the end of 2019? I came at the, oh no, uh, February 2020. So maybe just under okay. a year and seven months. Oh, so you, you came just, just when they were closing down the, the country? Literally a week before they closed the borders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So this is a welcome to Vietnam then. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's been pretty good for a year. Now it's been pretty locked down like now. So it's yes. actually there's a curfew and we haven't had this for since like wartime apparently. So it's, it's quite intense, mm -hmm. but we had it good for a year. And so you said you did Thailand, Bali, and then you came to Vietnam. So how did Vietnam live up to your expectations? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say part of the reason why I chose Vietnam was mostly because I didn't know a lot about the country other than from movies. And uh, obviously, I learned about uh, the Vietnam War during the Cold War time and, and during my university course. Uh, but I realized that I didn't know a lot about the country. And because of that, I was very interested in it. You know, I wanted to go there and experience it myself. So in terms of living up to expectations, I actually didn't really have expectations. Um, <laughs> which was very exciting for me, very, very exciting because I did not know what to expect. And I, I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the food. I, I felt very welcomed here, you know? And that along with my, my work, which was teaching, uh, I fell in love with teaching. And I, I knew I liked teaching, but it wasn't until I was here in Vietnam teaching uh, primary school students that I realized that I'm very passionate for teaching. And, and so if I'm not mistaken, you're teaching for a public school, not like some private company, English company. Is that right? Yes. So, well, my first teaching experience was with a language center, which was Apollo. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I moved to, I'm currently working for a company called EMG, which then deployed teachers uh, across different public schools. So since I've been at EMG, I've worked across five different public schools in Vietnam. I see. And um, so you like, you, you still like uh, teaching English right now? Oh, I love it. I love it. And the public school experience for me was a lot uh, better than working in a language center. You know, I walk into class and I have 35 to 40 students who are going absolutely crazy. <laughs> running around, screaming, fighting every day. And The connection that I've made with these students uh, for me over the past year has been the most beautiful experience for me. You know, you walk into the room and you're like a rock that. star. They're all screaming and they, they feed off your energy and I feed off, I feed off of their energy. I love that. Which match your, your empath profile, I guess. Like you feed off all that energy. That's great. Um, is there um, a question that I'm just thinking of right now? Is there any similarities that you see between like the Bermudian culture and the Vietnamese culture? Hmm. I would, oh, it's a very good question. I'd say Bermudians and Vietnamese people both really love food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They both really love food. Food is very important um, in Vietnamese culture and it is in Bermudian culture as well. But uh, other than that, nah, they're very different, I would say. I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, in terms of schooling system, school in Bermuda is extremely different to school in Vietnam. I see. I see. 
All right. I just wanted to know. <laughs> so since you came in February 2020, you knew that you wanted to teach English. You've accomplished that pretty fast. But did you know that you were going to open a charity? No, I had no idea. No idea. So leading on to why I guess I started the charity was I, I play for a football team here called Saigon Saints. And I play football quite a lot. So every time I'd go to play football, whether it was five aside or 11 aside, I started talking to the kids who lived around that area. And to kind of paint a picture for anyone listening, where I play football, you know, this is a, a, a really nice 5G pitch, but the community that surrounds the pitch is very poor. So every day I would go and play football here, and I would also see the opportunities for children to play football as well. And I noticed that all the kids that were playing football or being trained to play football on this pitch were kids from other communities, not kids from the community that actually lived there. And this really bothered me because I thought it was unfair that the, the reason why a lot of the kids that lived in that community were not able to be coached or to be trained was because they couldn't afford to play on the pitch that had been created in their own community. So after conversations with the manager of the pitch, that kind of led to me wanting to start a project that would just train kids in football for free. Because, you know, in my country, it's very easy to get football training. And I believe that should be available for, for everyone. You shouldn't just only be able to play football and be trained to play football because you have money. Very true. So that's how, that's how I guess, that was the start of Up Global. Like you wanted to teach uh, kids football for free here? So that was kind of the start of the idea of Up Global. Mm -hmm. The original idea, uh, yeah, I can tell you the story. So the, the reason why the, the project started was the idea firstly started with the idea of a football camp. I wanted to run a football camp where these the kids from the community that couldn't afford to play on this football pitch would be coached for free. And after speaking to the manager of the pitch, she said, wow, Toro, um, this is a great idea. We actually have a tournament coming up for orphans around Ho Chi Minh City. And she asked me whether I would like to host this tournament. So this is when I started thinking like, wow, I could you know, host a, a football tournament for orphans around Ho Chi Minh City for free. I could run a football camp with uh, kids from this community and, and kids from other communities for free. And also maybe I could do weekly coaching sessions in football for disadvantaged and vulnerable kids. And I had all these ideas, but I didn't know basically how to make them happen. And that's where I first started coming up with the idea to put them under one umbrella, which was when I made the decision that I wanted to create a, uh, a charity. So nice. That's so nice. I, I have goosebumps. You can't see it. We don't have the camera on, but like I'm, I'm loving the story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, lo I love the fact that you're you're vulnerable and you're saying like you know you you have all those ideas and you didn't know how to get them how to make it happen in a way so mm. how did you make it happen how did it transform from an idea and manifest itself to what it is today up global absolutely so i i did some research and i basically came out with with three things that did the i did sorry to start this charity what i would have to do is i would have to have the funding to make it happen i would have to have a, a place like a football pitch to to start to start this project but also i would have to have the coaches that could provide a high quality level of coaching for the kids there and when i had the conversation with the manager and she loved the idea. That's when I realized, okay, I have an area, I have a place to have football pitches. Mm 
to run our training sessions. I ended up sending an email to an old football coach of mine that trained me when I was in Brazil, when I was in four, oh, when I was wow. around 14 years old. And I hadn't spoke to him since. And I basically told him my idea that I wanted to run a football camp in Vietnam where we, we gave disadvantaged kids an opportunity to play football for free. Um, and if it was something he would like to help out with. And he responded very quickly, basically saying he loved the idea. Uh, he remembered me from when I was younger and he would come to Vietnam to coach these kids. Oh, and wow. wow, just like that, you know, within two days uh, of thinking of this idea, I had a football pitch. And I also had a, a coach, a professional football coach who was gonna come uh, to Vietnam. And, and then um, the last thing we needed was the funding. And I was very lucky. I have a, a good friend of mine uh, named Michaela Richardson. She has her own company in the UK. And I told her my idea and she said, Tor, we can help you raise money for something like this. Just, just go out and create whatever you want to create. And that kind of was the beginning of me starting and creating our first projects. Unfortunately, because of COVID, uh, the football camp never happened. And the coach, the Brazilian coach has not come to Vietnam yet. Yes. But that was the beginning of the creation of Up Global. And what that has led to is our weekly football sessions. But uh, another aspect of the uh, charity that then developed after that was our English classes. So because the back in, I think it was maybe February, we were supposed to have the football tournament for orphans. And again, that got canceled. I don't know if you remember, we had a, a like uh, a, yes. a short, Short lockdown? Yeah, for uh, for New Year's. I mean, uh, Tet. Yes. Yes, after Tet. So it was going to be a tournament for Tet. And then we had to cancel that because of the COVID scare then. And uh, during that time, I, I decided that, you know what? How about we start uh, teaching English classes online? But where, where, where are we going to find these kids? So what I did was I reached out to already established charities here in Ho Chi Minh City basically telling them um, our idea of teaching kids online. And one of those charities was the Ho Chi Minh City Welfare Association. They loved the idea. And we actually ended up having a meeting after the COVID scare was over back in February. And they told us that they already had English sessions, but they, they needed English teachers for it. And that led to us now having our weekly English sessions. Perfect. So it's still going. Um, online, it's still going right now, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, in person, everything has stopped because yes. of uh, COVID. COVID, yes. But we're waiting patiently for everything to reopen. And as soon as it reopens, we'll have those classes again. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, everything is, is on hold temporarily. We're staying positive. Obviously, one of the, the biggest barriers that I'm facing right now is that a lot of the the young people that we work with are disadvantaged, so they don't have access to computers. So they can't actually make our online classes, which has been a, which has been a hindrance for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me a this whole learning process for you, because you must have learned so much during all of this. And like, especially about, you know, asking for help, receiving support from others, fighting your own doubts. So how was that whole process and how uncomfortable was it? And how rewarding is the result so far? Yes, thank you. That's a really good question. I would say that I had a lot of self-doubt uh, multiple times throughout this process of creating this organization. Excuse me. Um, and that's my, for, for various reasons. You know, I had conversations with people that told me, you know, this isn't going to work in Vietnam. You are a foreigner. Uh, there are already established institutions here that are doing charity work in Vietnam. And while all those things are true, 
uh, I didn't let it stop me because I saw a clear problem. I saw children from a community that weren't getting helped. You know, although there are many organizations that are doing great charity work here in Ho Chi Minh City, there is still a demand. And mm. unfortunately, this community in Ho Chi Minh City was in a situation where they still needed help and other charities needed help from other people. And so one of the biggest things that I, I've learned while, while, um, while running up global is that you can't do everything on your own. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a big lesson for me because what, the only reason why we have been successful is because of the partnerships that we have with other people, other charities, such as the Ho Chi Minh City Welfare Association, but also other organizations like T-Shares, which uh, is another teaching organization my, one of my friends run. But what was really great about this experience was when I talked to people about it, I saw the, the passion within others that I wasn't the only person that wanted to help other people. You know, when I told them about the situation in this community in Ho Chi Minh City, other people are like, yeah, I'd love to help out. Just let me know. I can teach a class. And seeing that reaction from people made me, uh, um, made me really, uh, really happy, but also showed me that support is out there if you look for it. And luckily, I've always been very comfortable with speaking to other people and also sharing my thoughts and being very honest, which is why I think integrity is really important if you are going to start anything. And because of that, people have wanted to help out and wanted to share this journey with me. That's very good. That's very good. And so now the team at UpGlobal, is there, is it just you or you have people helping you? Yes. So one of my best friends out here, uh, Tomas Francesca, he works really closely with me in organizing our projects as well as doing our social media and planning other projects for the future. I also work closely with another person named Juan Carlos, who is kind of, uh, who has his own organization called T-Shares. And he has been kind of organizing the teaching aspect of the charity. And um, then we have around 20, I think 23, 24 volunteers who help with teaching classes or writing things online and other aspects of the charity. And we, the only reason why we have been successful is because of all the help of the people that I have. All right. So shout out to all those beautiful people. That's great. <laughs> I've not been able to do all of this without you, for sure. When I hear you speak, you, you know what you're talking about. We can hear your passion. You project that integrity and that, that compassion and that empathy that is really attracting. <laughs> That's great. Um, so really the next... Next question that I have for you is actually it's it's more like a, a half a joke. But did you did you ever had any naysayer that just came to you and be like, "Why are you opening a charity? Just give money to the kids. That's all they need." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually I had one person who I'm very grateful for who basically told me that I wouldn't be able to do this. That it would be mm-hmm. too difficult because I'm a foreigner, and mm-hmm. I love that. Someone doubting me was the drive that I needed uh, mm-hmm. to really harder and yeah. uh, people people say this a lot you know when you manifest an idea um, mm-hmm. uh, setbacks fallbacks or even doubters are so important because it it drives you to want to do more and when that person told me that I wouldn't be able to do this it made me want to do it more that's, that's great that's a, that's a, that's a mindset in itself because like I know I in, in my on my personal life I wanted to open a, a charity back in the days too and I I didn't live up to to those hopes because 
you know, I, I made like a few haters. And then I, at that time, I couldn't stand up for my own ideas. And I was so unsure. And I, I guess, you know, I didn't have enough self-love for myself to stand up to my own ideas. And I gave I mean, up on it so fast. Cause like, you know, at the first guy that said, oh, Vietnamese kids don't need to learn photography. They need money or milk or, you know, teach them math. And I was like, oh, fuck, he must be right. <laughs> I have the wrong the wrong thing but like now that i hear you i'm like yeah you're right like i should have stick with you know my positions and like you know my beliefs and and manifest so absolutely i i truly so. believe if your intentions are pure then things will happen you know if you really want to help people you know whether you're religious or not it doesn't really matter to me if your intentions are to help other people then the universe has its own way of making sure that happens and i've experienced that things have almost just fallen into place yes. you know there's been there's been times where uh, we've had some setbacks, you know, with our charity registration, we didn't get a number in time for something we needed. And it, I was like, oh, can we not do this project for this reason? Everything has always worked out um, in the yeah. long run. And I truly believe that is because our intentions are pure. All we want to yes. do is help people, man. Oh, that's yes, all yes. we want. I, I think you've just said the, the truth right here. It, it really depends on your intention. And a lot of people are not, you know, when I told you that story, you, you hit me on the... <laughs> right in the nail right here my intention at that time weren't that pure and like you know i was saying oh i want to open a charity to help kids but deep inside my intention was just to prove that i didn't study photography for nothing you know and yeah. and that's something that i've said in, in multiple interviews too if your intentions doesn't align with your actions then nothing is going to manifest itself and so you're totally right so where do you see up global growing next so the part of the reason why Up Global is called Up Global is because I, we want to have projects in other countries. Within the next year, we actually have projects that are being planned that I can't really talk about here in Vietnam, which is very mm -hmm. exciting, COVID, COVID depending. But mm -hmm. after that, I would love to replicate something similar in my own country, in my own community. And um, I didn't really talk about this much earlier, but the community that I grew up in Bermuda, I guess you could describe it as a rough neighborhood, one of the rough neighborhoods in Bermuda. Although rough neighborhood in Bermuda is nowhere near as rough as <laughs> rough in other countries. But you know, a lot of the young people that I grew up from my neighborhood have either been killed due to gang violence, are in jail for other various reasons or aren't really doing much within their lives. And because of that, I want to replicate something similar in my own community uh, because that's where I grew up and that's where my parents live and that, that's where I'm from. So that is kind of the next step for me is, is replicating our projects in my own country and then eventually in others as well. So uh, in your mission on your website, like you said that you chose the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number four and goal mm -hmm. number 10. So goal number four is quality education and goal number 10 is reduce inequalities. So how did you come about choosing those two goals? Yes. So the, the main thing that we wanted to talk to tackle when I started thinking about, you know, what is my mission? What do I want to do? I want to help people, but what does that look in a practical sense? And the, the issue that we're tackling is inequality of opportunity. You know, one, the, one of the main things we want to do is to give kids who don't have opportunities new opportunities. And this, in an official sense, is described perfectly by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these goals, uh, if I believe I'm correct, are supposed to be achieved by the year 2030. And the only way they're going to be achieved is people act on them, you know. 
And I can't, it's almost like a call for action. Like, okay, here, here are our goals. If you can act on these, please do. <laughs> and, and the reason why I, I chose goal four and goal 10 is because they, they clearly define what I am trying to achieve. The equality of opportunity can be tackled through goal number 10, which is to reduce inequalities. So providing kids with new opportunities and quality education. One of the issues with uh, the education system today is that it is, um, it is the same education system that our parents used and their grandparents. That education hasn't evolved just like humans have. And this is a big issue because what students, what kids are learning right now doesn't really prepare them for the real world that we live in right now. And this is something that UpGlobal looks to tackle. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you a little bit more on how you, you would approach education, uh, UpGlobal way? Yes, yes. Um, and I'm very lucky because we're working closely with uh, T-Shares, whose goal is to uh, democratize education, to basically... Right now, the education system, only the top 1% get what we describe as quality education, which is away from traditional methods of, you know, the teachers, the teacher and everyone has to just listen to what the teacher says. And the teacher is just mm -hmm. speaking to the students and the students have to somehow remember everything that the teacher has said to yes. a more hands-on approach, doing more activities in groups and where a teacher is more working as a facilitator. Whereas, you know, I offer a topic for us to discuss and then the students discuss it themselves, where they have critical mm -hmm. thinking themselves, where they learn how to do things themselves rather than me telling them to do it. And this is really important because this is how the world works now. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you can't just I agree. information. Yes, I agree. I, I feel like we don't need so many teachers anymore, but we need more guides. Like people are looking for more uh, guidance than they're looking for teachings. You know, like the, um, they, they're looking at like, okay, I have a few choices in front of me. I don't need anyone to teach me which choice I need to choose, but I want people to be like, okay, well, like, you know, those are the choices. Those are the risks. If I was you, I would choose this one, but make your own choice, you know, like that, that guidance that I feel sometimes our parents didn't give us so much. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. And that's partly due to the generation that our parents were part of, you know, that was mm -hmm. how they were taught. So they yeah. believed that was the right way, but it, it mm -hmm. is showing now. And the, the approach of many international schools now is what we would describe as quality education, which is very different from traditional methods of teaching. But the mm -hmm. issue is, is that this is only available for the top 1% of people um, of who have money to afford this type of education. So what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is we're trying to take that system and make it for everybody, not just for those who can afford it or those who have lots of money, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and that's what we replicate in our, in our classes. Mm -hmm. That's nice, that's nice. So like, do you have a particular group of people that you wanna help? Mm. So right now we are, are focusing on the children who are helped through the Ho Chi Minh City Welfare Association, because mm -hmm. that charity is one of the oldest charities that helps children and has been fighting. One of the first charities that have been fighting for children's rights uh, in Vietnam as a whole. And because of that, we have been very lucky to be working closely with them, but also they have uh, access to a lot of children who are in need of support. So right now, I guess those would, would be the, 
the direct uh, group of children that we are trying mm -hmm. to uh, impact right now at this time, as but well as the children from the community around where we have our football sessions. Mm -hmm. But do you see yourself like, you know, globally uh, impacting children's mostly? Yes, children and, and young adults. We, young adults. you know, around the ages between six to maybe 21. Okay, very good. Anything else that you wanted to add about Up Global and, and your plans for Up Global before we move to the next part? Um, no, I think that, no, that, that's perfect for now. Thank you so much. Did, I, I hope I did justice with all the questions to your motivation behind it, your mission. And if I didn't make it clear, I, I totally support it. And I, I can't wait for Vietnam to reopen, to come and join and help in some ways. And we're really happy to have you on the podcast, really talking about oh, this. Thank you so much, bro, man. Super inspiring, uh, really. All right, so let's move to the next part then. It's it's more so about your personal life, how you care about yourself and you know how you balance yourself. So okay. uh, one of the things that you've said that really you know like interested me uh, was uh, how you described yourself as being highly empathic. I consider myself being really empathic too. So I'm really trying to see with how is your experience with you knowing this about yourself. So how is life as being highly empathic for you, uh, Toro? It's very difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very difficult because I can, I sometimes get quite emotional when I see other people experiencing something negative. And this is, I've experienced this my entire life since, since a young age, from just watching people struggling through conflict on TV, through the news, to actually working with people who were, had experienced traumatic experiences from a young age, uh, to now where I'm you know, here living in Vietnam, where unfortunately there are uh, many disadvantaged children in comparison to my own country. And, and when I talk about empathy, you know, there are three types of empathy, which is cognitive, emotional, and compassion. The cognitive type of empathy is the one that makes you understand what someone else is feeling. That is like you putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm. Um, the emotional empathy is actually feeling the pain that they feel. Um, and the compassion empathy is like the call for action. Like, okay, I understand what someone else is feeling. I feel what they are feeling. And now I want to do something about it. And I really feel like I have the strong sense of compassion and empathy because every time I see someone in need, I really want to do something about it. Mm. Um, and the reason why I say this is difficult is because, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes I just tear up. I'm just like, damn, like, why, why, why does this person have to be experienced? It's, it's so tough. I see. Uh, this is so interesting. This is the first time actually I'm hearing about cognitive empathy, emotional empathy and compassion empathy. So that's, that's quite interesting. I, uh, I'm trying to see where I fit myself in all of this, but <laughs> yes. nice. Um, yeah, definitely cognitive. I can put myself in people's shoes very easily. I can feel people's mm -hmm. emotion and yeah, I, uh, so I used to be on that compassionate side where I, when I would see something, I would, I would care so deeply about it that I would, I would essentially try to solve people's problem and I would not mm -hmm. care about myself anymore. So did it happen to you in your life? Do you see that pattern? And if so, how do you manage this? Yes. So all, all three types of empathy, I, I, be, I believe that it's, uh, they're interchangeable. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think you, an individual is just cognitive, uh, just experiences cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. I, um, I feel like at certain times they experience all three, but in different ways, they work together mm -hmm. almost. I see um, 
but my from from a very young age, you know, uh, <laughs> I tell you a funny story. When I was younger, I remember every Sunday my mom used to watch uh, church on TV. Sometimes, if, she, if we didn't go to church, she would watch church on TV in the morning. And usually, the the commercials that were from that program would be like from Save the Children or the Red Cross. So on TV, you would see like you know donate to this child or adopt this child. And every Sunday. I would go to my parents and say, "Can we please adopt this child from Southeast Asia? Can we please adopt this child from Northern Africa? You know, or from uh, mm. Congo, African Republic?" And every week, <laughs> that, and my parents would be like, "Yeah, okay, we'll do it next week, Toro. Don't worry." Obviously, they never were going to do it. <laughs> this was the start of me really experiencing compassion and empathy. I mm-hmm. just from watching. I wanted to do something about it, and uh, as I've gotten older, especially when I was working for the 1625 charity, where it was the first time where I actually was able to help people every day, yes. and this for me really important. You know, it was the first time I, I felt that I was fulfilling my own purpose because um, mm. what I'm doing is my purpose. That's that's great. Do you know where other people's Emotion starts, and when yours stops, or like, do you, can you differentiate your emotions to other people's emotions, or your feelings to other people's feeling, or sometimes it blends uh, in together? I see what you mean. Uh, yes, I've had to learn over time to not allow other people's feelings or traumatic experiences affect mm-hmm. my own life, and I think this is very important because if you do, even though you're empathetic, if you um, if It is possible to allow people who've experienced trauma uh, to affect you in such a negative way that you end up doing nothing about it, or you end up allowing it to think that oh, this world is this terrible place, which it is, and you know we're all going to die, everything is going wrong, there's so much issues in the world. It's it's really easy to to feel that way, and it's really important to take care of yourself, but also to educate your, yourself on how to put yourself in other people's shoes, how to want to help other people, but also how to take care of yourself. And the way that I do this is through uh, reading and studying. You said that, you know, you were reading a lot and you were educating yourself, but is there anything that you do physically every day, like routines that keeps you grounded? Yes. Um, so... Physical activity is very important to me. Like I said, from a young age, I've really been into my sport. For my own personal mental health, I find it necessary to play football or to go for a run or go to the gym, for example. Physical activity makes me feel good, but also it clears my mind. I, I really do feel a lot better after doing something physical. And uh, part of the reason why my projects are football related uh, at Up Global is because it is something I do care about passionately. Mm-hmm. I see. Do you meditate or do anything like this, like any mindful practice? Yes. So I, I pray every day as, as part of the Baha'i faith. I pray twice a day, me personally. And that is very important, you know, when I wake up and before I go to bed. And for me, that kind of sets me off. It sets my day. It starts my day. Without it, I don't really know because I, I don't not do it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's part of your routine. That's good. It's very good. We uh, we love that here at Creators in Saigon. We all have like a self care morning routine. Each each of the hosts. So praying is 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 a good way to do it. Like it's it's great. Absolutely, and um, and I, I don't meditate. You know, uh, I, I well, prayer can be considered a type of meditation of yeah. some type. Of Def- definitely, um, I do wish I meditated a bit more. Because we're in lockdown, I've actually started doing yoga, which I yeah. haven't really done before. Um, uh-huh. Well, this consistently I haven't really done before, so I have really been enjoying uh, doing that as well. Yeah, that's great. And then, how has COVID impacted you mentally, and how are you dealing with this? Mm-hmm. It, I would say, COVID this recent lockdown has had the most impact on me because it's been the first time where I've kind of thought, "Wow, maybe I should go home." Um, go home for a little bit before coming back to Vietnam. Before I always had the intention of at least being here till next year before I visit home. Um, but with no with no idea in sight of when things would be reopening again, it was the first time, this, these past two weeks have been the first time where I really thought, you know, maybe I should go home and visit my family uh, because it's going to be two years soon since I have seen my parents and I'm very family orientated. You know, I have two sisters as well and a niece who I miss very much. So I'd say COVID has really made me miss my family a lot. You know, maybe it's because I'm not as busy as I would normally be. Um, and to, to kind of combat that, it, it's been really important to keep busy during this time. I see, I see. And uh, are you starting a family on your own soon? <laughs> it's like the, uh, no, definitely not. Uncle question. <laughs> Stora has a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I will not be. I I will not be starting a family soon, anytime All soon. Right. Okay, I see. That's 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 sweet to hear, though. Like you know, being a family person and missing your parents definitely that plays into. Uh, so, are you staying in Vietnam? Did you make your mind, or are you uh, you're still hesitating? There's there's still a little hesitation. You know, the the biggest thing that that keeps me here is uh, our projects that are currently going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, luckily, there are people here that can continue. The projects as well as some of our projects are online so i could do them anywhere in the world but mm-hmm. if things were to open back up and i'm not here it could cause some issues temporarily for the charity even for if sure. i do go home the intention is always to come back here i see that's great all right we're coming to the conclusion right now actually i'm going to leave you the mic you can send your message to the universe tell mm-hmm. people about you know what's coming up for you and like you know if you have if you need some help from any but from anyone listening or some support or if you have an idea just throw it out there you have the mic go ahead toro thank you so much bro so i guess the first thing i would say is for everyone experiencing lockdown right now to remember to stay positive and one thing that up global has been doing these last couple of weeks is we have a pass the ball not the virus challenge mm-hmm. so basically if you look on our social media um, our instagram is at upp global you will see that we have had loads of videos from people around the world who are passing the ball instead of the virus, uh, which is basically you control a football or anything. It could be toilet paper, it could be a paper ball, and you basically kick it back to the camera or to something else. And that is our positive message of spreading awareness of mental health and children's mental health during this time, uh, because it is very important. Uh, But more importantly, one thing I'd like to say to anybody listening to this right now is that Whatever you do in this world, uh, just make sure that your intentions are pure 
And if your intentions are pure, I truly believe that you will be successful. And what I mean by that is in my belief that we are here on this earth to make the world a better place. And if you can contribute anything to the betterment of humanity and to the betterment of other people, you should do it without feeling, um, without feeling barriers of any way. And we all can do it. And it's only through together, only by doing things together, will we be able to make this happen. So again, if you want to find out more about Up Global and our projects, you can go onto our Instagram, you can go onto our Facebook, or you can go onto our website. The Instagram, like I said, is at UPP Global. That's the same for our Facebook. And the website is at www.uppglobal.co.uk. Amazing. Amazing. We'll put all those links into the show notes. Don't worry, in the, in the description for the episode too. So very honestly, I, I can't wait for this lockdown to be over just to give you like, you know, a nice handshake and a hug because it's been really <laughs> inspiring you, to talk to you. Thank you so much. The last, last question that I have for you is how would you describe Sagan in three words? Aha. How mm-hmm. would I describe Saigon in three words? I would say... Saigon is exciting. Hmm. Saigon is confusing. (laughs) And Saigon (laughs) is beautiful. I love this. I love this. All right. That's perfect. Once again, thank you so much, Toro, for joining the podcast. It will be a pleasure to meet you in person very soon. If you have... You know, if you, uh, again, if any of the audience wants to reach out to Toro, all the links will be in the show notes and uh, make sure to join, like, you know, the challenge that he has on Instagram with uh, passing on the ball, don't pass on the COVID. And um, and if you want to join his, uh, you know, all of his effort online, offline, then, uh, you know, reach out to him through his website or his social media accounts. Much love, Toro. Thank you so much, Toro. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to Creators in Saigon. If you liked this episode, become a part of our mission to inspire others by leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends on social media. This one small act can truly make a difference in someone's life. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and see you next time.